Six weeks ago, I had the privilege of a lifetime. Those of you in the room heard just a, an inkling of that a, a while ago as Leslie spoke. But we took a trip, a lifetime opportunity trip to Europe. And there we visited our oldest son who's been in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, for the past five months. And he's coming home in one more month. So we're, we're obviously excited to have him back home. Uh, yeah, yeah, can't wait for that. And it's been a, a huge milestone for him. When they say study abroad, I was always a little bit skeptical. What are they actually doing, you know? And, when, and I found out. Uh, I, I think I've spoken with my son on the phone over this past two weeks more than I've spoken on the phone with him over the past three years, probably. As he's homesick now, he's beginning to think about, oh, he can't wait to get home, and he misses having people around. So studying abroad is, yes, gathering information and learning a lot of things, but it's also about just the life experience. Coming to terms with, do I like myself? Can I get along with myself? Or do I need to change? So he's going through a lot of that, and we've enjoyed seeing him be able to go there. We're especially going to enjoy seeing him come home in another few weeks, and can't wait for that to happen. But today, I'm not going to stand up here and talk about that trip, day one through day eight, all right? But I do want to share just a couple of experiences with you from that trip, because a couple of them were very um, life-impacting for me. One of them you heard just a while ago. On day one, as we flew into Brussels, Belgium, we rented a car, and on the very next morning, we drove to Maldingen, Belgium. Again, where my grandfather fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And to tell you that, um, to see beautiful things is one thing, right? But, and we've all done that. But there are times and there are places, and really for me it's two, this being one of those places where when you stand on the ground, you feel something, right? You feel this deep connection with somebody that was very close to you, that you, you had utmost respect for. And even now, every time I think about it, every time I speak about it, I get goosebumps. And there are only a couple of places like that that I've experienced in my lifetime. My prayer is that I will never forget that day, and that I'll carry that with me for, excuse me, for the rest of my life. Um, as we were there, we did a lot of different things. You can imagine, if any of you have been to Europe, and in particular Belgium or Rotterdam, you know that there's tremendous architecture to take in. There are a lot of good chocolate foods to eat, a lot of good foods in general to eat, and we did a lot of that. Um, we ended up going to uh, see the windmills in Holland, which was fascinating. We went and saw the uh, tulip fields in Kuchenhof. Anybody ever heard of the tulip fields? Oh my goodness, unbelievable. I'm not gonna show you a thousand pictures today, I promise. I'm gonna show you two, and one of them is from that day. Uh, Nick and I, my son and I, went with Leslie to, to, on this trip this day, thinking, okay, this is gonna be for her, it's her birthday. She loves tulips, it's her favorite flower, so we're gonna go and just have a good time. I'm gonna tell you something, I took 364 <laughs> pictures that day. It's the day I discovered how much I appreciate portrait mode on my iPhone also, right? I mean, just spectacular. For as far as you can see, there are pictures, flowers like this, every color, every design, they're organized in a million different patterns across this park. I'm telling you, it's the Disneyland of tulips. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, there are busloads of people coming into this very small town to see these flowers. And the thing that really struck me about it was as many people as were there, you didn't even realize they were around you unless you were in their line for the restroom or the restaurant. But because you were so captivated by these flowers in front of you, you just didn't notice anything around you. It was one of the most peaceful things I've ever done. I hope. I get to go back and see it again. Beautiful, beautiful thing to do. But we also, on the last day of our trip, 
Leslie planned um, tea and finger sandwiches lunch for us. I'm probably, I probably look a little bit more like a iced tea and barbecue sandwich kind of a guy, but it was good. Yeah, and we weren't there for the food. We were there for the view. It was a place called the Euromast. Anybody familiar with the Euromast? Think Seattle. Think Space Needle. 600-foot tower, restaurant at the top, 360-degree view for as far as you can see. And in our immediate view was the port of Rotterdam, which is supposedly why our son went there in the first place as a, as a business major. Um, the port of Rotterdam was right below us, and you could see it's a massive port. It's the busiest, in fact, in all of Europe. And so as we're looking over that port, just like any other port that I've visited, the port of Charleston or Norfolk or wherever, the thing that mesmerizes me the most is these container ships. I just cannot take my eyes off of them. They're, they're massive size, their capacity to carry huge payloads. And this is not a picture that I took, but it is a picture in the port of Rotterdam. This is where the world record for uh, cargo payload was set in the, in the port of Rotterdam. On that ship alone, there are over 21,000 of those containers. Just blows my mind, right? And so the, the, the port is filled with these things. And they're everywhere, all right? Now, the reason that I bring that up today is as impressive as they are, they're completely useless unless they get out of the port, right? Now, they could travel 9,000 miles once they get to open waters, but if they don't get to open waters, then it's useless. They can't service the 500 million-plus people that are within a day's reach of this port unless they can get to open waters, the same is true of the main characters in our story today as we're going to continue in the book of Acts in our sermon series on, called Beyond, and it is looking at the book of Acts. And I'd like you to go ahead and turn to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking here in just a few minutes at verses 10 through 19. And I want to pray for us as you go there now. I want to pray for our, our time together. Kind Heavenly Father, we um, are so grateful again for the freedoms, first of all, to, to stand a symbol here together and to worship freely in this house of God. We never want to take for granted the freedoms that we have, but Lord, we do want to take full advantage of them. And so Lord, now as we symbol, assemble together here today, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. I submit them to you. Through Christ my Lord. Amen. Amen. So if you've been following along over this past four weeks, we've been, again, looking at chapters 6, and we'll go through 12 in this series, Beyond. But in chapter 6, we see the birth of the church, right? And ensuing exponential growth of the church. Chapters, chapter 6 tells us about this unstoppable growth that's happening within the church. It's the spread of the gospel message that's simply this. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to this earth, was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And now he's a savior to all of us who would call upon his name. Whether Jew or Gentile, Jesus can be our savior. And that was the simple message that so many, a growing number of people were beginning to spread across not only Jerusalem, but into Samaria and other parts of the world. And so as we pick it up, um, as we pick it up in chapter 7 and 8, we are introduced to a man by the name of Saul. 
Um, if you've not known Saul or Paul, I'm sure most of you do, but if you don't, all you really need to know about him is that from the time he enters the scene, he's a tyrant. I mean, he's a bad dude who's made it his overwhelming life mission to search out, hunt down, imprison, gather and imprison anybody who speaks against God is what he thought was happening. He thought that these followers of the way, which is what this group was called at that time, those who followed Jesus Christ were followers of the way. Saul thought that anybody who was spreading that message was blaspheming against God. And as such, he made it his obsession, his overwhelming mission to not only hunt them down, but to gather them up and imprison them. Or even in the case of Stephen, permit their murder. He was completely obsessed with this. Chris said it last week this way. Saul was immersed in drowning in Lake Me. And what he meant by that was simply that Saul, or, or any of us for that matter, was so obsessed with his way, his way of doing things, his way of seeing things, his thoughts, his own self-righteousness, that he couldn't see the way, the truth that was right in front of him that was spreading like wildfire all across the land. He couldn't see it. He was drowning in a lake of me. So as a result of that, he goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he asks for letters of authority, essentially, so that he can go and do exactly that, chase down, gather, and imprison all followers of the way. The high priest granted him those letters, and he set off for Damascus. As Chris mentioned, it's about a 130-mile journey. And on that journey, God decided differently for Saul, didn't he? Last week in 9, verses 1 through 9, we read the story that details the events or event, tells the events of the story of how Jesus literally drove Saul to his knees just by his mere brilliance. God had different plans for Saul. While Saul was on his way to gather these Christians, these followers of the way, God decided he was going to do something different. And in this case, he had to stop him in his tracks. And as a result of the brilliance of the light of Jesus, he was left blind. But if you read the story or go back and listen to last week's message, you'll read that Saul was commanded by God to go on to Damascus. And so his assistants had to guide him there, and he was to go to Damascus and wait. And so that's what he did. So as we pick up today, we're going to find that Saul is in a dark place. He's contemplating what he had done, what his life had meant up until that point. He had made it his mission, remember, to seek out the very people that followed the person that called and drove him to his knees, Jesus. What did his life mean? He'd even witnessed and permitted the murder of Stephen. So you can only imagine that he's reeling in his mind. In fact, it says that he was in a dark place. He was fearful. He was remorseful. He was confused. He was actually hungry and thirsty also because he had been uh, taking part in a, a fast of repentance, if you will, where you go into deep um, contemplation. You think about the repercussions of what you've been doing. And that's where we find Saul today. God was beginning to drain the lake me in Saul. 
So we're gonna read verses 10 through 19 this morning. Acts chapter nine, verse 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Keep that in mind. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. May God bless the reading of his word. Ananias, who in the world is this guy, right? Never before have we heard or seen mention of him in scriptures. He's not the same Ananias that we read about in chapter 5, who was dead at this point. If you remember, he was struck down for withholding a portion of the offering to God. Uh, in, in this chapter, in verse 10, it says simply that he was a disciple at the Damascus. He was a follower of Christ who lived in Damascus. There's one other account. It's in chapter 22 of Acts, and it's actually Saul, or by this time, Saul is being referred to by his Roman name, Paul. And in chapter 22, Paul is recounting his conversion story to the crowd that's in front of him. And in that chapter, Paul describes Ananias as a devout man according to the law, meaning that he knew he was familiar with Scripture and the law, and that he was well spoken of by all the Jews there. The Jews there in Damascus, that is. Other than these two accounts, we can find absolutely nothing about Ananias in Scripture. We don't know how he came to follow Jesus. We don't know if he was qualified for the work that we just read about, God calling him to do, showing him in a vision. We don't know if he was trained or qualified to do that by the world's standards. However, in just this brief description he exemplifies several behaviors and disciplines that I would love for us to take a look at today as we spend the remainder of our time together. So let's take a look at the first striking thing about this, which is the way that God spoke his vision to each one of these men. I mean, first of all, remember in verses 1 through 9, he drove Saul to his knees. He, he stopped him in his tracks, didn't he? to the point where Saul really, really didn't have a choice but to obey, did he? I can imagine if I was in his shoes and Jesus showed up, first of all, I know I'm gonna hit my knees, right? But if I've never had a relationship or I've never met Jesus before, I don't think I'm gonna get up until I'm told to get up, right? I don't know who he is. I only know that I've persecuted people who have followed him. So God got his attention by driving him to his knees, forcing him to stop and wait. But on the contrary, if we look at Ananias and the vision that God imparted onto him, 
It's much different, isn't it? It says that he came to Ananias in a quiet, in a subtle way, really. It almost leads me to believe that this wasn't a new thing for Ananias. He was accustomed to hearing the voice of God. He wasn't rattled by it. He was, it wasn't an unfamiliar voice to him. He knew Jesus as his Savior. And so when Jesus spoke this vision to him, it did not fall on deaf ears. It did not concern him immediately. As you see, he answers, here I am. And so unlike Saul, who had really had to obey God, Ananias was able to choose to obey God. And in doing so, God began to open Ananias' eyes to not see Saul for who he had been, but instead for who he could be, which would be a hard thing to do, right? If all we know about this guy is that, hey, I've heard from a lot of people that this is a bad dude and he's coming after people like me because of what I believe. And he's going to imprison me. He might even kill me for all I know. But it didn't alarm him at first. He says, here I am, Lord. He realized, Ananias, that is, realized, probably began to realize anyway, that Saul, the man that he was being called to go visit, was uniquely qualified to do something that he himself, Ananias, could never do on his own. And that God began to give Ananias this vision for who Saul could be. As he began to give him glimpses of how Saul would be used by God for God in spreading the gospel message. He understood his role in Saul's life, or he began to anyway. Ananias recognized he could never be Saul himself, but he did recognize that he himself had a unique position, a unique perspective, didn't he? First and foremost, it came in the form of a vision, and if that's not empowering, although maybe troublesome, maybe a little uh, worrisome, that is somehow empowering to us when we hear from God and we just have that peace within us. That even in the midst of the obstacles that we can see with our physical eyes, God is calling us to do it. So he realized that he wasn't going to be Saul, but he did know that he was, who he was, and he was confident in who he was in Christ. And so with that, we, I'll make this statement, we cannot all be Saul. Ananias realized that. But we can all take on Ananias' perspective, can't we? And he knew that. He knew what God was calling him to do. So let's look a little bit closer. Ananias was obedient. And, and, and all that to say, in, even in despite of his fears. Verse 10, he says, uh, Here I am, Lord. It's the first response he had. Again, it, it kind of harkens to there's an existing relationship here. He's used to hearing this voice from God. He's not, it's not unfamiliar to him. Here I am, God. But then as we read into verses 11 through 14, God begins to tell him exactly what he wants him to do, doesn't he? And it's a little bit more worrisome now because now, God, you're telling me that you want me to go talk to this guy who's been killing, imprisoning, hurting, doing everything he can to stop the spread of the gospel, the very thing that I believe. You're telling me you want me to do that? Are you sure I'm the guy you want to do that? And so what did God do? He gave him more details. 
But it's interesting to me that in this moment, there's a point of doubt, right? Clearly, a point of doubt and fear for Ananias. But I'm struck by what he did and what he didn't do. I would want to go to, to other people around me who I know um, somehow, they might have a, a, another word, another perspective than me, but ultimately they're probably going to agree with me that that would be crazy to go and speak to this man. That would be crazy. So it's interesting to me that Ananias didn't do that. It says that he went right back to God. He said, but God, I've heard from many about this man. And it's just like God that he would, in his own intimate, individual way with each one of us, speak directly to Ananias. And he began to give Ananias more details about the vision of how, Ananias, or how Saul was going to be used by God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in that position, I might think, huh, hmm, you're going to use him to talk about your son, Jesus. Okay, I'm intrigued. And as we see, God begins to continue, give, continue giving him details about this vision of how Saul was going to be used to spread the gospel of Jesus. So he didn't take it to other people, his fears, that is. He went directly back to God. And as we read it, God essentially told Ananias to go and to be a friend to Saul, which is still a little bit daunting, isn't it? to befriend somebody, to befriend a total stranger. But that's exactly what Ananias did. He went to someone he saw was in need. Now, when we talk about befriending somebody who is in need, what I don't mean is that somebody who is less fortunate than us, right? I mean, after all, it's kind of hard to imagine how Ananias would possibly see Saul as less fortunate, right? I mean, after all, he's been educated by some of the top scholars of his day and in that region. He has the government, he has the religious institutions on his side as he's going after people like Ananias. On the contrary, it was Saul who had the favor, not Ananias. Secondly, Ananias didn't underestimate what God might do through him. And there's nothing in Scripture, as we read, that says that he was qualified, that he had any special training. Other than what we read in 9 and chapter 22, we don't know anything else about him. So it's probably safe to think that Saul was the more educated of the two men. Yet God chose Ananias to carry really a world-changing commission to Saul. Ananias didn't create the commission. He didn't come up with the commission. He was simply the messenger to Saul. So if it didn't have anything to do with his qualifications, maybe it had something to do with his perspective, his proximity to God. Maybe it had more to do with the fact that he was in a relationship and able to hear from God and thereby just putting aside the need for credentials. Maybe... It had more to do with Ananias' ability to see Saul for who see Saul, to see Saul for who he could be rather than who he had been. I wonder what that looks like for us. We all have people in our lives that it's easy to see what they've always been in our experiences with them. 
But I wonder if God's not asking us to look a little beyond that to what God might want to do with that person. And then lastly, in this part, Ananias is empathetic, sympathetic. It really leads us to believe that he met Saul on his level. If we read the passage, it says that he went to Saul. And, and God even gave him the words to say, call him Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The very term brother was an endearing term, wasn't it? I mean, these two men are complete strangers. Saul is blind. Ananias comes from nowhere and meets up with him. But both of these men have had visions from God talking about the other person. Saul approached, or Ananias approached Saul with compassion, with empathy, with even sympathy for his condition. And I wonder what that might look like for us. So what else did Ananias do as a, as a, a friend to this total stranger, Saul? As we read through the passage, we see that he spoke biblical truth to him. He told Saul the message that was given to him by God. And again, Saul was expecting something from this man, Ananias, and that's exactly what he did. He spoke biblical truth to Saul. This is a very simple thing on the surface, but in order to speak biblical truth, don't we have to have that within our own hearts, right? We can't very well, with clarity anyway, speak about the truth of God if we don't ourselves have them within us. And again, we can garner from the passage that Ananias had that ongoing relationship that allowed him to be able to speak biblical truths to Saul. More importantly, might not even be our words, right? We may not even have to speak a word. Sometimes, maybe more times than not, it's our actions or our attitudes that speak to other people. And so I'll ask today, do our attitudes and our actions match what we say with our mouths, we believe. And lastly, when we're called to, to befriend a stranger, we're not called to be friends with this person forever necessarily, right? We might be, but sometimes God has people come in and out of our lives for seasons, right? They come in and they're just as quickly gone. And that seems to be the case here in chapter nine, that Saul was introduced to Ananias and that it was not a long-lasting relationship. But instead, it was just a moment in time. Ananias didn't just tell Saul of God's calling on his life. Even though it was a brief time together, Saul, Ananias actually led Saul in his next steps, in his faith walk. It's probable that when Ananias met up with Saul, he explained the gospel message in as clear a way as Saul had ever heard it before. He gave him that simple message that Jesus is the Son of God, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. And that he then very possibly led Saul in a prayer of repentance. But then as we look, he did also give him another next step. He told him to go and be baptized and to speak the word of God to others. And if we read in chapter 22, he did exactly that. Saul was baptized and immediately began to speak the truth of God. He spread, it began spreading the gospel immediately. So what might that look like for us today? A lot of us may not have 
the theological training that we can impart all this wisdom, biblical wisdom onto people. But we're in a church that teaches biblical truths, aren't we? And we know that as a part of our church, there are people across our campus who are able to help. So if even all we do is meet the person, befriend the person, and then hand them off to someone else, that's maybe all God is calling us to do in that particular case. Again, he may not be asking us to be lifelong friends with this person, but as responsible followers of Christ, maybe all we need to do is make sure that this person takes good biblical next steps. I'd like for us to take a look at the picture of the ship one last time as we close up today. Again, as, as massive and impressive as their capacity is, their ability to travel thousands and thousands of miles, they're useless unless they get outside of the port, right? It's always amazing to me when I'm watching these things in the port, how they're maneuvered. As big and as impressive as they are, they cannot get out of that port on their own, can they? I wonder how many of you noticed the tugboat in the front of that ship. It's amazing to me how these small, in comparison, these tiny tugboats can maneuver these gigantic ships. You might see two on one side and one on the other, two pushing, one pulling, positioning all these ships so that they can leave the port and get into open waters. I liken it myself to Saul and Ananias. And I'm thankful for the trip there that will forever change my perspective of this story. Saul is this gigantic ship. As we read, and, and we will over the next coming weeks, learn about Saul's impact on the world, on us, you and me today. But he couldn't have gotten onto his feet if it hadn't been for the likes of Ananias. So this morning, my question to you is not how you can find an Ananias to support you and make you the Saul. But instead, what if we look for somebody who might have greater potential than we have in ourselves? And as, as much of a blow as that can be to our egos, what if we do that? What if we look for somebody that we see potential in? Maybe they're not someone we've ever seen potential in before, but as we pray and ask God to show or reveal someone like that to us, I trust that he will do that. And maybe then we become Ananias to another person. And that's my, my challenge for us today, is to begin to pray who that is in our lives. It may be at work, it may be in your friend circles, anywhere. But to begin to pray for God to reveal to you who you can be friend and become Ananias to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are just thankful for the truth in your word. I thank you that it's living and that it can be fresh and anew every time we read it. And so, Lord, thank you for the effect that you've put on me with this passage. I pray that it would reveal something new, maybe something different for those who are here and listening today. That, God, we would begin to pray and ask for you to reveal someone to us. That it would not be about us, God, but that it would be about someone else, as difficult as that can be for us. As much of a blow as that can be to our egos, God, I pray that you would help us to see the bigger picture, to rise above that, 
to live outside of our own flesh and bones and instead begin to have kingdom mind perspectives. That at all costs, in every way we possibly can, we would put forth the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and raised from the dead for our behalf. May we share that good news in every way that we can. Through Christ, I pray.